Hi, welcome to Meditations on Love. And we are on this series of the Bride of Christ. And we've been uh, on this topic for some time. And so if uh, you have missed one or two of the sessions, I encourage you to go to the YouTube channel and just um, catch up, you know, listen to it, meditate on that passage. Because each time we meditate on that uh, a particular passage, it kind of builds on one upon another. And we have a fuller picture of uh, the bride, our bridegroom king uh, who's coming for the bride of Christ, which is us, the church, the people of God, the sons and daughters of God. So as we approach understanding the bridegroom paradigm in the word of God, uh, I encourage you to wrestle, to chew on, to meditate on these uh, key scriptures that are given. Now, there are lots uh, lots and lots of scriptures in the Bible concerning the Bride of Christ. Uh, we will not look at all of them, but we will pick a few of them and we will chew on them. Okay? Uh, Psalms 27, verse 2 to 6. Okay, Psalms 27, verse 2 to 6. All right, uh, let me just read it out to uh, to to you guys first. So David is saying, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh and my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Verse 3, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter. In the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Okay, Lord, I just pray that you will open up the word to us and um, help us to fall in love with you, God. Yeah, help us to fall in love with your word. Help us to fall in love with you as we look upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a really, um, um, I think for worship leaders and uh, prayer warriors, this is a real gem to them. This passage, especially uh, verse 4, is a gem to, to, to them, to us. Um, it, the context of this, okay, I've I've got just a lot to to speak about this whole passage, uh, this whole psalm, um, but I'll see what we can make it through uh, as the Holy Spirit leads us. Now, the context of this whole passage is David is waiting for the salvation of the Lord from his enemies that are surrounding him. Now, oftentimes we take this one verse, verse 4, and then we talk about worship and, and you know, setting our eyes on Him and prayer as if it is a very calm, serene kind of feel. But you need to understand the context of this uh, psalm. This, this verse 4 is embedded in the midst of David being surrounded, besieged by his enemies. Okay, he's in a very precarious position. And you can tell from the psalm, from reading the entire psalm, that the battle is internal as much as it is external. Right? His soul is, is fearful, but his spirit man within him is, is trying to be strong, is, is remaining strong, is trying to be steadfast, and he rises up. He rises up in his spirit to command, to instruct his wavering emotions 
to trust, to trust the Lord and not be anxious. Okay. We see this in, in verse 14, right to the very end, the last uh, verse uh, 13 and 14, right? Verse 14 says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your um let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. All right. So um right at the very end of this uh psalm, you can see David, he's telling himself, wait for the Lord. In the midst of being surrounded by the enemies, in the midst of being in this position, be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He's telling himself, he's telling the people around him, he's telling his armies, be strong, wait for the Lord. Okay? I know you're afraid, but you can be courageous. <laughs> okay? Um, I remember, uh, you know, teaching Joshua uh, the same thing. You know, uh, there are times that he's, he's cycling his tricycle and there are times there's a slope and he's afraid. And uh, I've learned not to tell him uh, from, from, you know, uh, child, uh, children, experts. <laughs> I've learned not to tell him, don't be afraid. Just go. Uh, or, you know, uh, don't need to be scared. Just go, you know. I learned to let him know it's okay to be afraid. I know you're feeling fearful, but you can be courageous as well. In the midst of being fearful, you can be courageous as well. You can choose to be courageous. And I think that's what David is doing right here. In the midst of all of that, he's choosing his spirit man, who he is, whom the Holy Spirit is inspiring, is, is strengthening. His spirit man remains strong. His spirit man rises up to command, to instruct his soul, his, his fleshly part of him his uh, wavering emotions, right? To trust God and not to be anxious. Now, um, the enemies are encroaching externally, but the real battle, again, is internal. And if he is fearful, uh, it's okay, but he must not give in to fear. Fear must not dictate his actions. Fear must not dictate our actions. So he, he's struggling right here to win that inner battle. His, his faith shall not fail him. So think about this, okay? Uh, let's picture that, that, um, picture that situation. In the midst of battle, in that, in that, um, in that time, the loser not just loses his life, but the loser, uh, but the enemies um, will often slaughter his family. We're talking about his wife, his children, his aunt, his grandparents, everything, you know, like the enemies will slaughter every single one of them. Now, if you think about it, if David in that situation is being besieged, he is in danger of his family members being killed. Now, how do you, how would you react? <laughs> I don't know how I would react if, you know, I've got robbers, murderers, thieves, whatever, outside my house, trying to get into my house to kill my wife and my kids. <laughs> I don't know how I'll react. I don't know if, Psalms 27 verse 4 will come out of me. <laughs> but in the, in the face of all of this, how does he manage to stop himself from trembling in fear, but calmly trusting in the salvation of the Lord? Psalms 27 verse 4 is the answer. In the midst of all this, he comes to the Lord. Verse 4, he seeks to dwell in the house of the Lord. Number one, we're talking about nearness to God. 
proximity to God, intimacy with God, coming near, coming near, to be with Him. Number two, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, right? To look at His beauty, to have a revelation of who He truly is. Now, what David is doing is not a passive move. He's not kind of like, okay, there's nothing I can do now. So therefore, uh, I just sit here and spend time with the Lord. No, no, no. It's not that. It's he, what he's doing is the most offensive thing he can do. Offensive as in retaliation against the enemy, trying to overcome the enemy. That's what he's doing right here is the most offensive, powerful thing he can do. To be near to God and to gaze upon his beauty. And we see that oftentimes in the Bible, where the Lord will put uh, the, the, the worshippers, the singers, the musicians ahead in the, in the army, uh, before, even before the, the ones carrying the spears and the swords, you know, to fight the battle, right? And, uh, you know, uh, coming back from the missions conference in Thailand, uh, there was one speaker that said, you know, sometimes we think that the destruction that the enemy brings through COVID uh, is the loss of lives. And it's not just the loss of lives. I mean, th definitely that's devastating, especially to those who have lost lost loved ones. But... I think the enemy seeks to do something even more destructive to the church, which is to bring fear, to bring fear to the church where there should be courage, there should be wisdom, there should be love, there should be compassion in this time of trouble, right? There should be unity in this time, yeah. And uh, the second hit that is coming, that is common, is coming more, is global global uh, inflation, right? And again, um, it's not just about poverty, but it's about the fear of lack, fear of death, fear of not enough. You know, all of that. That's what the enemy is trying to do. This this is our enemy. This is our enemy that surrounds us that seeks to slaughter our family. Just that in those times, it's with swords, it's with, uh, you know, all that. But this, the, the, um, one of the weapons that the enemy uses is the same, which is fear. Do you give in to fear? Do you fear and give in to fear? Or do you live by faith? Right? So, David in that situation, he could be doing a lot of things. He could be talking to his um, his army generals. He could be strategizing. He could be gathering his family to try to run out and escape. And, you know, he could be doing all of that, a lot of these things. And the thing is, I see the body of Christ. I see a lot of Christians do this, that uh, during this pandemic, during this um uh, times of difficulties, they try to escape. They try to escape the country or or just do stuff that uh, uh, is out of the desperation, out of their own desperation and out of their flesh, but not out of wisdom and not out of the leading of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So they are very much giving in to fear and saying it is wisdom, but it's actually flesh, fleshly wisdom. Now, the thing is, how do we be like David? How do we do this? We tap into Psalms 27 verse 4. Nearness to God and seeing His beauty. Now, what does seeing His beauty do to you? What is, how is beauty, <laughs> how is beauty powerful? How is beauty powerful? We talked about this a little bit last week, right? Beauty does something to your heart, to your mind, to your emotions. It gives you pleasure. 
be, some, when you look at some uh, a beautiful object, a beautiful scene, a beautiful uh, view, when you listen to beautiful music, it brings pleasure. It, it, it brings uh, satisfaction and it brings a certain calmness and peace to your heart. That's power of beauty. Now, we talked about beauty of the bride, but we're going to talk about the beauty of God. Because God is the ultimate beauty. Now, um, there are words uh, that kind of describe beauty in the Bible. In uh, Isaiah 33, verse 17. Isaiah 33, verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Your eyes will behold the king, God, the God king, in his beauty. Um, Psalms 50, verse 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Now, these two words right here, uh, these the, the, the word beauty right here in uh, Isaiah 33 and uh, Psalms 50, um, is is the word yofi, uh, which means kind of like a beauty of excellence. A beauty of excellence, okay? So it's beautiful because it is excellent. Um, which is a little bit different from Psalms 27 verse 4. The word beauty here is noem. Noem means attractiveness, delightfulness, pleasantness. Okay. To gaze upon the attractiveness, the desirability of the Lord. You know, that, that beauty draws you. Okay. So there's, there's uh, different aspects of the beauty. But we're going to talk about the excellence part first. Uh, when we, in the presence of excellence, our hearts are awed. Okay, that's what makes it awesome, right? It when you hear, uh, when you go to a concert and you hear, uh, them play this song, right? And you say, "Oh, that's the most beautiful. That's the most right." What you're what you're trying to say. Is is so excellent. This is the the best I ever seen, right? And you you go up to uh you know Mount Everest. You you see the view from there. Oh, that is the most glorious view ever. You read a book as um elegantly written. That's the most well written book ever. Uh. uh a lesson that is well taught, a sermon that is powerfully preached. There is something about excellence that is beautiful. Excellence in creativeness or in creation is beautiful. And when it's beautiful and it's excellent, it kind of does something in our hearts. It shifts something in our hearts. It inspires us a little bit. It, it it shifts some, you know, it, it could even, you know, like someone who, who when they were young, they heard a, a, a classical piece of music. They heard it and they saw, they saw the person playing that, that violin or that piano or that, you know, clarinet or something. And they saw it. It's so beautiful. It inspires something within them that might shift them onto a path pursuing music. Right, or or someone uh you know uh looks at a house that's so beautiful, uh and you know that inspires them to be an architect in time to come. That's the thing. Uh, creative excellence in creation in in creativeness, even the creativeness of man, it shifts something. It does something deep in our hearts. It could inspire us. It could shift our mindset. It brings some form of transformation within us. So when, when we know this, we know that any form of beauty outside of God, it is still beautiful, but it's imperfect. It's flawed. And, and secondly, it's temporal. It's not eternal. 
but the beauty of God is perfectly excellent and is eternally excellent and is inexhaustible. That means when you look at it, wow, it's beautiful. And then when you research it more, when you explore it and seek to discover it, you discover, wow, it's even more beautiful. And then you just keep going and going and going. It goes deeper and deeper and deeper for all eternity. And because it is so, it is deeply transformational to the one who perceives the beauty of God. The beauty of God is deeply transformational to the person who views, who perceives it. That means the more you perceive his beauty, the more you're changed by it. That also means your spiritual maturity is directly linked to how beautiful you perceive your God. <laughs> I know. It's mind-blowing. How, how beautiful you see God to be, how perfect, how excellent, how holy you perceive your God to be, is directly linked, affects your spiritual maturity. That means if you cannot see the beauty of God, there is a hindrance in your spiritual growth. Is God beautiful to you? Is He beautiful to you? If not, if He's not beautiful to you, it has nothing to do with Him. It has more to do with you not having spent time beholding Him for who He truly is. Because to behold Him, to look at Him, to gaze upon Him in, in His Word, in worship, and all of that is to find Him beautiful. When you behold Him, when you look at Him more and more, you will find Him beautiful. And you will fall in love with Him and you will be transformed by Him. So don't be trying to transform yourself by trying to be, um, how do I say? Trying to modify, change your behavior to be like Christ, but instead, just spend time beholding Him, you will become like Him. It's kind. It's it's a little bit like, you know, uh, um, we we have difficulty trying to teach uh, Joshua uh, Chinese uh, Mandarin to be speaking Chinese at home, because Amy and I don't speak Chinese to one another, right? And the thing is, for him to learn, um especially a, a, a language. Um, a language is about a mindset, a way of thinking as well, you know. For him to learn Chinese, he has to behold us. I cannot sit him down and give him a workbook and about, you know, a Chinese workbook and just teach him word by word by word and make him memorize the different words. It just, it doesn't work that way. He's just got to look at adults talking to one another, joking with one another, you know, debating with one another, arguing with one another in Chinese. <laughs> you know, that's how it works. That's how you kind of learn a language. You just be immersed in the midst of it and hear it and see it all the time. And that's the same with Christ-likeness. you got to be immersed in God to hear Him, to see Him all the time. That's how you become like Him. To behold Him is to find Him beautiful, fall in love with Him, and become like Him. There's something also about beauty. Uh, so the first part we talk about beauty as excellence, right? Beauty, there is also an attractiveness about beauty, right? 
That's the beauty uh, of no no one. Psalms uh, 27 verse 4. It makes you an addict because beauty is attractive, is delightful. There is an enjoyment of the object of beauty. You always want more. So, so it satisfies you, but at the same time, it, make, it, make, it just makes you hungry for more. The other part about beauty is this. Um, when David is in that situation where he's fearful, he's afraid, and what happens when he looks upon the Lord, and why is it that he's able to calm down? Because beauty draws you out of yourself. Beauty draws you, it draws your eyes away from yourself. From your self-centeredness, from our selfishness, from our self-seeking, from our self-doubt, from our self-preservation, from our self-pity, from our self-glorification. It draws your eyes away from you to focus on the beautiful object. And it leads you to sing praises about it. It's just like that. That's, that's what beauty does, you know? You, you, you first lay eyes on, on a scene with beautiful uh, scenery, beautiful mountains and lake. Immediately, you, you look at it, you're wowed by it, and you try to grab the person beside you and say, look, look at this, look at this. It's so beautiful, right? Now, that's the thing. You, as you do that, when, when, you, when you perceive that beauty, you're no longer looking at yourself. You're drawn immediately to that scenery. And then the next thing that you desire to do is sing praise about it. It's a natural response. Praise and worship is a natural response and should always be a natural response to beholding the beauty of who God is. So in a sense, we should kind of start off with, with a Bible study <laughs> and then go into praise and worship, right? Because we you 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 dig into the word and you see how beautiful, how glorious it is, and then you end off with worship, which brings you to a, a, a release, a response to the beauty of God. Yeah. So that's what happens. That that's that's the power of beauty that takes place when you are in the midst of a very tough situation, whether it's at work, with your family, with you know, all of that. When you're in the midst of a very tough situation, let me encourage you to do one uh two things. One is Lord, I want to be with you, I want to draw near to you. Number two, I want to look at you. I want to see your beauty. Now, is does this make sense? What David was doing right here, what he's his, uh, talking about, what, what he's praying right here, he's actually praying prophetically. He's praying from the heart of Jesus. Because thousands of years later, Jesus prays the same prayer. He prays in John 17, 24. Jesus is praying to the Father and He's speaking His, His, His deepest desire of His heart. John 17, 24 says, Father, I desire. This is my longing. You know, often we, we tell God about the desires of our hearts. We tell God, Lord, I want this. I need a breakthrough in my, my family. I want this person safe. All of that, we, we tell God what we desire. But have you ever asked God, like, Lord, what do you desire? What's, what do you desire? Because you weren't created for me. I was created for you. 
And so it should be that I would meet the desire of your heart, God. So in this verse, we see a desire of Jesus, and which is also one with God, which means it's also desire of the Father. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, number one, may be with me where I am. Proximity, intimacy. Number two, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. To be with me and to see my glory. That's what David prayed. David caught it, you know, <laughs> so many years before Jesus prayed this. You know, someone else caught this as well. Moses. Moses caught this. Remember the situation where um, Moses climbs up the mountain and, um, and the Lord speaks to him, right? The Lord, uh, in, in Exodus 33, um, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and your people whom you have brought up out of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? Verse 2, it says, I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, and all of them. Right? And uh, yeah, go up, but I will not go up among you. Okay? Now, the thing is, uh, how many Christians, how many believers would actually fall for it? How many Christians would actually fall for it? You know, it's like, it's like, uh, if, if the Lord uh, spends 40 years of your life preparing you, speaking to you, preparing your heart for a mission that He's given you, a promise, uh, an assignment that He's given you, okay? And He spent 40 years preparing you for that assignment. And then at the end of it, He says, Kenny, I've prepared you all these 40 years. You've went through hardship and all that. I've prepared you for this. The promises, I'm giving it to you. I'm granting you your calling, your destiny, the fullness of what I have destined for you in your life. You will get the fullness of it. But I will not go up with you. I will send an angel to go before you. It will clear out any of the, of the people who resist the gospel. It will clear them out and you will be able to fulfill that call, that destiny. But I will not go with you. <laughs> what would you do? Well, Moses said, verse 15, if your presence will not go with me do not bring us up from here basically he said no i want to be with you i want you to be with me i want proximity with you i want you more than my calling my destiny and assignment and promises being fulfilled and all of that i want more than that i want you god i want you and verse 18, at the end of talking to God and all that, verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. Moses tapped in to the heart of God. Moses tapped in thousands of years ago to the prayer of Jesus in the New Testament. I want to be with you. Show me your glory. Show me your beauty. Show me who you truly are. I want to see you. I want to see you. And that's what God wants for us as well. Because the eternal longing, the ancient longing of God is to fully dwell with His people. And for Him, 
to show us his glory, for us to perceive, to fall in love, to be transformed by his glory. When David sees the nations gather to rebel against God and his anointed, where are his eyes? Psalms 2. He sees the glorious king sitting on his throne, laughing. That's where his faith comes from. Because the glory of God is unshakable. If you are able to see, to perceive God in the midst of your trouble, then that's where you become unshakable. That's where you have peace. I'll tell you a story of uh, this guy. Uh, I heard this testimony uh, or this story of this guy called Alan Gardiner. Gardiner. Uh, some of you who studied uh, missionaries or missiology would have heard of him. He is a missionary in the 1800s. <laughs> uh, to the missionaries who look at him today, to the mission organizations to, who, and the pastors and leaders in the church who will look at him today, man, this guy is a complete failure. He's a complete failure. Let, let me tell you a little bit about his life, okay? Uh, 1800, grew up in England. He was uh, leading a good position, a good vocation in the British Navy, okay? And as he traveled through the world, he saw unreached people groups. He got saved, received the call of God to resign from the Navy and to go preach the gospel to unreached people groups. Now that means giving up. That means like being detached from family, being detached from comfortable life and, and all that. And at that time, unreached people groups are like tribal they are, I mean, yes, we, we have we still have tribes today, but 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 it's really, really like backward kind of thing, you know? Not comfortable at all. <laughs> he tried, uh, so at first he tried to reach people in South America. Okay. Um he was rejected by the Roman Catholics over there, kicked out. So he couldn't do South America. He then went on to Africa to try to reach the Zulus and spent years establishing relationship with the king of Zulus and uh, finally having that rapport, having that relationship and wanting to bring in mission teams and people to come in and, and all that. That's when war broke out between the Dutch and the Zulus and he had to leave picked out again so at this point really having nothing established nothing in that sense he went to papua new guinea uh he tried to evangelize to the tribal people there he was rejected kicked out by the protestant dutch government that were there they were telling him preaching to these people are like preaching to animals so don't bother get lost yeah and then he went to the Falkland Islands to reach to the Patagonians and he tried to partner with missions organizations no one would partner with him <laughs> so he said okay I'll start one he gathered a team of about seven people got a ship sailed there they set camp on the beach tried to reach out to them, but the uh, Patagonians uh, stole all their supplies. They lost everything. <laughs> they packed up, basically, uh, left. They restocked. And this time, they went to South America. They set camp uh, at this particular place. They set camp uh, at the beach. They were attacked. Their supplies were stolen. They they realized like, okay, I think 
we've got to just we we can't camp out at the beach we got to camp out on our boats you know so they camp out on their boats near the shore and every time they see a few people they'll quickly go to the shore try to talk to them you know so very very limited uh interaction even with the people and they were shipwrecked <laughs> Because uh, it was very stormy, they were shipwrecked, their supplies were stolen, um, they had no food, no clean water, and so one by one, the team members just died of starvation, and so eventually did Alan Gardner. Yeah, and that was his life. So, he gave up his vocation in British Navy. Tried to go to South America, rejected. Africa to reach the Zulus, rejected. Papua New Guinea, rejected. Falkland Islands got stolen, stuff got stolen, kicked out. <laughs> and uh, South America again, attacked. Supplies got stolen, shipwrecked. Basically died on, of starvation with his team on the beach. His uh, backup supplies reached 20 days later. And uh, by the time the whole team had, had died, and they found his journals. <laughs> and in his journals that they recovered, uh, it was, there, were, there were many journals that he wrote during that time. But in the last words, in his last words, when he was dying just before, in the face of death, you know, uh, he quoted Psalms 30, 34 verse 10 that says, The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then he said, his last line of his life was, I'm overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. Yeah. Like, man, I don't know how to be a missionary like that. <laughs> and I would expect his journal to be full of anger, <laughs> not overwhelmed with the goodness of God, really angry with God. God, you called me. You called me out of the British army, out of a comfortable life to preach to these people and I get rejection and rejection and rejection and, and attacks and shipwreck and all that. And, and I expected to be full of anger and all that. But you know, in the times of, of difficulty, I think he looked to the Lord because those who seek the Lord, those who look to Him, lack no good thing. That means everything that He needed, at that point, He has. And not just He has, but He says, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. Yeah. Finally, um, I want to end off with this one thought about the beauty of God. Jesus, the most beautiful one in all in 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 all in all the world, <laughs> the most beautiful one, at the pinnacle of his mission on earth, at the cross, was he beautiful? Was he beautiful? Isaiah 53, we know this passage quite well. Isaiah 53, let me read verse 2 to verse 5. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, 
and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Was Jesus beautiful at the cross? Well, no and yes. Because if you stood there on that day where Jesus died, if you stood there at the cross beholding the corpse of Jesus, you would turn your face away. It would be grotesque. It would be so ugly, so terrible, you would turn your face away. So no, it wasn't beautiful. But yes, it's beautiful. Its beauty is because sacrificial love is the most beautiful deed in all of humanity's history. Whenever you see, whenever you hear of parents who sacrificially gave their lives for their children, it's a beautiful story. When you hear of someone uh, someone who righteously give their lives for another, who would die for, for someone else, you would think Im immediately your heart goes, wow, that's so beautiful. So the, the cross, the scourging, the suffering and all of that, that is upon Jesus, it's ugly. It's the darkest day in history. But his act of love is perfectly excellent in making us beautiful, in making us delightful, enjoyable to God, desirable, attractive to God, pure, holy to God. That work of the cross is perfect and is excellent, therefore is beautiful. And that work of the cross is attractive. It draws you. There's something beautiful, glorious about it that draws you. That's why the, the gospel is so simple and is so beautiful. It draws the heart of men. He took, Jesus took the ugliness of our sins upon himself. He gave us the beauty of his righteousness of his purity. We, the redeemed bride of the Lamb of God. Lord, we look to you today and we look to the cross. We hear Jesus' prayer, Father, I desire that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Lord, we tap into Jesus' prayer and we tap into David's desire to be to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, to be near you, to be with you, and to behold your, your beauty, to behold your glory, to find you beautiful. We see Moses saying, I don't want the promises. I don't want the, my destiny, my calling. I don't want all of that if it means giving you up, God. I want your presence. And I want to see your glory. Lord, it is your desire, God. It is your desire that we see you and we be with you. And so we are praying, today we are praying the prayer of Jesus. Lord, we want to be with you. God, in the midst of our 
busy schedules and and the things that Lord you have called us to you have given us you know in the place where you've put us in the midst of all of this Lord help us help us to be with you because that's your desire and we are praying according to the will of God help us be with you God help us find time help us you know find creative ways to be with you you have created us for that and God help us to see your glory to see to perceive you for who you truly are to see the attributes of God the character of God the love of God the justice of God the mercy of God the goodness of God Lord Alan Gardner may may be seen as a failure in the eyes of the world but but Lord you call his life beautiful He was a servant that was faithful to you. He was a servant that was faithful to you, that has found you worthy, that has found you beautiful, that has found that giving you his life was worth it. Was worth it. And so I ask help us help us to see you and to see the worth of who you are as we behold your glory and your beauty god we thank you lord in jesus name amen